Hello and welcome to the Combat and Classics Podcast. I'm Brian Wilson from Dallas, Texas. I'm Jeff Black from Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Lise Van Boxel from St. John's in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Uh, today we're doing Plato's Phaedo, um, a dialogue about uh, Socrates' death. And uh, we're going to start off with a brief summary and an opening question. Yeah, thanks, Brian. So um, Socrates has been charged by his fellow Athenians. And uh, I'll read the text of the charge from the Apology here. This is Plato's Apology. Socrates does injustice and is meddlesome by investigating the things under the earth and the heavenly things and by making the weaker speech the stronger and by teaching others these same things. So Socrates is charged by his fellow Athenians and he undergoes a trial. According to one story, more people vote for the death penalty than vote to find him guilty. And the death penalty is that he has to drink hemlock. But there's a twist. The Athenians aren't willing to put Socrates to death while they have a sacred ship out on a mission to Delos. And that ship is going to take some time to come back to Athens, and it's out at the time that Socrates' trial concludes. So there's a period of time when Socrates is in prison awaiting his execution. So when the Phaedo begins, the ship from Delos has finally come back to Athens, and Socrates and his friends know uh, that Socrates has to die by the end of the day, by the time the sun goes down. He's going to have to drink the hemlock. And so Socrates and his friends spend uh, their last day together conversing. And the subject of the conversation is death and whether it should be feared. And uh, Socrates' view is no. So uh, to start our conversation about this dialogue, I just wanted to ask, uh, does it seem to the two of you uh, that Socrates shows courage in the face of death? Ooh. Like bigness courage or smallness courage? <laughs> Define your terms. <laughs> it's a deep, it's a deep, deep B-side uh, cut there into the dialogue um, right away. So if you haven't read it, you're not going to get that. And I'm not sure I get it either. It, yeah, it's, it's tricky because, I mean, the courage courage wasn't necessarily something I got unless it was, you know, compared to his interlocutor, interlocutors as some kind of foils. Um you know, it was more ambivalence, mm-hmm. you know, not, not ambivalence. I guess that's too, too, I don't know. That's not right. But, but something between like ambivalence and courage. I don't know where that would, where it would yeah. fall. Maybe, I, maybe, go ahead. Yeah. Maybe Brian, part of the difficulty you're having, you're dividing it in that way. And I think part of the complication of the opening question is that uh, Socrates has a complex soul. That is, it, it involves more than one part or it has parts. And so I'm inclined to say insofar as one speaks of him as only his mind, which of course is an abstraction that we can't, it's uh, going to be a question as to whether it's even legitimate to speak that way about him. Uh, but if we make that, uh, that separation, then I don't think I see any need for courage with respect to his mind. But with respect to the fullness of the psyche, 
um, there's a part where the, one of the youth speaks of the way in which uh, he, he wants to claim that they're not afraid of dying, but that could Socrates please speak as to that little child in them that is afraid? Mm-hmm. And to the extent that Socrates may have that also, that aspect of him in his complexity, then he might be afraid and need courage and demonstrate courage insofar as he doesn't manifest that fear to the youths who he's trying to save from their own fear. Mm -hmm. So the thought, I think, behind that example uh, that one of the the young men present uh, raises is that Socrates could say or perhaps sing something that would calm uh, the little child in each of us and give them uh, some portion of what Socrates himself seems to have, right? This uh, courage in the face of death, or uh, the way Lise points out, uh, lack of a need for courage in the face of death. So uh, what sorts of things uh, does Socrates sing that could have that effect? We're dramatically pausing. Your your podcast is still (laughs) still on. This is... This is, we try to keep the dead air to a minimum, but actually in a real seminar, this happens. <laughs> well, we're thinking. <laughs> That's right. It's like yeah. we're, we're reliving that part in the dialogue. I mean, I, um, are you singing for us, Brian? Is that a little bit? <laughs> 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 um, I guess I, I'm not sure if this is what you have in mind, Jeff. And so if, if you, if you're hiding your answer from us, just, <laughs> you should let it out. But, uh, um, I'll try a stab at what, what my response to that question, which is, um, at least for a large portion of the dialogue, he is um, arguing or making arguments, none of which, by the way, I think are sufficient, but making arguments that the soul, that, that basically you don't die. Um, mm-hmm. um, now, those arguments are the, ba- the baldness of it. I, I think it's fairly clear to see that those aren't true, but there might be subtler things going on. But nevertheless, just repeated arguments in the face of objections from the youths um, that the soul does not die when the body dies. Right, and that seems to be uh, the important first step, right? We see something that looks like it's uh, a terrible thing that happens to the body, and we assume that something correspondingly terrible is happening to the soul, right? Uh, either that it's somehow destroyed along with the body or that it that somehow flits away and vanishes. Um, Socrates wants to prove that this is not true. Right? And that, I guess, is the first step, the first thing he wants to do to um, show that death is not a thing to be feared. Right? And so the arguments tend to be based, uh, these arguments that look insufficient, as Lise points out, tend to be based on some claims about the kind of thing that the soul is, right? which is tricky because it's not uh, directly or immediately visible to us. Right. And that's what tripped me up was just the idea of the invisible and the visible. Like as soon as we introduce that, it kind of brings a stark kind of not, not immediacy, not a, but a, a, it's a, it's a very tangible argument of how do you prove anything invisible exists, right? You have to, you have to figure out how, how you can measure its impact against something else. Mm-hmm. Right. And so then we get into this kind of idea of the just and the beautiful and, you know, I guess I don't. They, he doesn't really talk about this, but I, I guess how does how does the just and the beautiful affect the body? It it doesn't because it springs forth from the soul, right? And so you, I don't know. This was a very kind of confusing part of the dialogue. Is if these kind of forms, these quote unquote forms, the just and the beautiful, the good, if they exist, and he says he believes they exist, and that 
the soul is tied up in those with those in some way, but it's all invisible mm-hmm. to us. Yeah, I could take a, a stab at how the two things go together. I think his claim is something like this, that um, uh, when we perceive things with our bodies, we perceive um, determinate things. We might see, let's just say, for example, a dog. And when we see a dog, we see both the thing that we're calling a dog and we see something like its class character, what it has in common with other dogs. And that thing he claims we're not seeing with our body. That's not a sense perception. That's a perception of the soul, of something that is in principle different from or independent of any particular dog, right? And so that looks like it might be his first um, wedge in the thought that there's some kind of difference between the body and the soul, right? That there's a difference between this is a dog and its character, its dog character, Jeff, would you be, I just have a, maybe a subtle difference, but see if you would agree to this. Did I hear you correctly that the the idea of dog was separate from particular dogs? And if so, isn't that part of the question that's begged in the dialogue? That is, it's distinct, but if there were no dogs, the category wouldn't exist except as a historical fact. And this is relevant because in the defense of the soul, he's not that clear about that. Um, And so to the extent that the soul or mind is the thing that necessarily operates using ideas Mm -hmm. that are distinct, but perhaps not simply separable from the, for the individual, from the particulars Mm -hmm. uh, that, that it contains, it becomes a question whether or not you know, my mind, your mind, a particular individual's mind could exist without the body. Right. No, I think that's entirely right. In other words, um, the difficulties with this account become apparent pretty quickly. But it does seem like Socrates' beginning is that he wants to deny that uh, this class character, the look of a thing, can be somehow derived from the particulars. Right, and one, once right. he has that, he can base a lot of things on that, right, including the pre-existence of the soul before birth. Right, right. and just uh, we could give another example: the dogness. But maybe since it might be a difficult idea, especially if people haven't read the dialogue or haven't read it for a little while, it one could say it this way also that whenever you speak about, say, a beautiful person or beautiful uh, or a dog, but let's just use beauty as the example because that's Brian one Brian raised so-and-so is beautiful um, and you're looking at a variety of different people. Maybe you think they have different characteristics that are beautiful, physical characteristics. Socrates says there's no way to say those things um, at all or intelligibly unless you presuppose or grant that there is an idea of the beautiful. Mm-hmm. Right? right. In other words, that, that's what you're invoking when you refer to particular beautiful individuals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there, he claims that there's something pointless in trying to say that this person is beautiful because of the color of their hair or the color of their eyes or how tall they are. And he says in the case of his own uh, intellectual development that at a certain point he found himself saying the only cause of beauty is the beautiful itself, right? And similarly with other things, the cause of equality is the equal itself, Right. And this is another, I mean, I'm thinking about your opening question again, Jeff, and um, another interesting um, aspect of the dialogue that it highlights is, is this, that 
when I first read the dialogue, it does look like the like the most obvious thing is troubling the youth. That is that they die, that we all die. Socrates is is going to die very soon, but that they might be more concerned about their own death than his, and his is just the occasion to see whether philosophy might save somebody from fear of death. But then as the right. dialogue proceeds, and certainly at the point that we're at now, where we start speaking about the beings or the forms, the ideas, um, it starts to become clear that they're not so much interested in um, the most basic concern about death, non-existence, or what, what happens to you, as they are about um, the fact that they, they think when Socrates dies, there will be nobody remaining who will be able to give them accounts of what is, that is, the, re- the realm of being. And they almost seem like a priest figure. So he's their conduit or their Hermes-like God who gives them access to the eternal. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be the thing that they're most afraid of, which then leads to this uh, Socrates realization that what's at stake for them is mythology or hatred of reason. And that's a very odd thing to emerge out, out of what looked like a fear of death, right? Right, right. Yeah, so they're, they're afraid that if Socrates is not around, that their speeches are going to move around and not hold still. Right. In other words, anything that they refer to is going to be a thing that is coming to be or passing away. And as a result, uh, they won't be able to decide how they ought to live based on speeches. Right. And so Socrates needs to cure them of this. Yeah, because, I mean, that's that's similar to I mean, early in the dialogue, he talks about like brave men, that brave men don't necessarily not fear death. They just fear something else. So these youths are falling into that trap of fearing fearing the something else. I mean, fearing death and trying not to fear death, but then there's a balance of fearing the something else and the fear. I don't know. The fear, it, Socrates is afraid that they will abandon reason. They they are afraid, seemingly of death, but I I feel like there's some kind of similarity there between what he's talking about, which is generally brave men. Like he's talking about kind of alludes to, you know, being a soldier and talking about how, you know, people do brave things, not because they don't fear death, but because they fear something else, something else. They feel the judgment of the people Mm -hmm. around them. But the, these kind of philosophy students are doing the same thing, but it's not fear of death. And Socrates is kind of afraid for them, of something else. I don't know. I'm going a little bit in circles no, no, let, here. No, no, let, <laughs> let's track the explicit hero metaphor. So the dialogue opens with a reference to Theseus, right? That Theseus, who is the, the Greek hero who's uh, typically credited with founding Athens by, by killing all kinds of bees, beasts. Um, we're reminded at the beginning of the dialogue that uh, every year, the um, the Greeks were sending young people off to Minos, where they were presumably eaten by the Minotaur, and Theseus saves them from this. Um, but it involves us sending these youths off on a sailing ship, which then comes up later in the dialogue. Um, Simeus says, basically, um, if one doesn't know or discover um, that the soul is immortal, one has to sail through life in the midst of, of danger. Um mm-hmm. And then there's another sailing metaphor, which we'll, we'll, I guess we'll get to probably ultimately, 
where Socrates speaks of what's called his second sailing. But all of those sailing metaphors, it begins with, the, with the, again, the very, if we take it very literally, loss of life. But insofar as Theseus founds Athens, I think that's connected with loss of philosophy. Mm-hmm. right? So, so again, it ends up being, I think what Jeff said, not, we're not so much concerned about loss of life, although we are certainly concerned about that too, as we're concerned about having a meaningless or bad life. Mm-hmm. Right, that, that that's that's the thing, and um, that concern seems to require philosophy. Mm-hmm. Well, and if yeah, well, just let me try to seize the Minotaur by the horns then, and, <laughs> and put the problem this nice. way. Uh, we've we've uh, suggested that Socrates is uh, giving bad arguments for the immortality of the soul. Right, But we've also now suggested that Socrates is the person that his friends have to look to or think they have to look to uh, in order to make the case for being, in order to make the case for dialectic, and in order to live a good life. Right, So if it's up to Socrates to um, do something for his friends before he dies, um, can he do that sort of thing by making bad arguments, or do we need to think about the arguments made in some other way? Yeah, that's what's tricky is that there, the the arguments are very slippery, right? I I mean I I I leave the the dialogue not really either either lost or not convinced. Um, in his argumentation. So what, what of the dialogue itself and how it's treated can we glean from, you know, any concept of immortality or knowledge? Well, I think the parts where the, he doesn't prove that uh, you're going to persist in your individuality. So the way you experience the world now as a complex being um, of mind and body, that he can't prove that that's going to persist. But I think, and in fact, I think uh, if one tracks those arguments, it um, he shows that it can't. Um, mm-hmm. But none of those arguments ever show, nor I think could they show, uh, that the mind can't participate or soul can't can't participate and in, um, in being. And indeed, for the reasons we said before, must because we use concepts that are. Um, not dependent on the body whenever we use reason or logos to use the Greek word speech thinking. That's what's taken up in the second half of the dialogue. So again, when it when it becomes starts to emerge that they're not fear that they're not afraid of death in the crudest sense, but rather they're afraid of not having accounts and there and therefore not being able to participate in being, that's when dialectic starts to emerge. Socrates says, okay, particularly with respect to Cebes, who has this notion that this um Maybe the soul wears out over time, right? It might be immortal, but maybe it wears out. And he he has this moment where he says, "Oh, so what you're what you're really talking about is the is uh, generation and destruction. Mm-hmm. You're really asking about that." And then he pauses, sort of like us earlier in the dialogue <laughs> in this podcast. He he withdraws, and we're told he goes into himself for some time, and then it's like a restart. And he speaks of the turn he took presumably when he was about their age, when he was looking for meaning in human life. And he looked for it first in a a philosopher or natural scientist called Anaxagoras, who claimed that he could show that the cosmos was uh, mindfully created. Mm -hmm. um, 
And Socrates was very interested in that, I presume because it would show something like the eternality um, of the cosmos. But when he went to Anaxagoras, that's not what Anaxagoras was doing. So rather than thinking something like it's proper, the intellect or the mind of the cosmos has made it so that, say, for instance, the three of us are sitting here right now having a conversation or um, everything has a reason. And Exagoras would say something like, no, the three of us are sitting here right now because all of us have spines and mm-hmm. quad, quad muscles. And, and so that's not, those are things that are required to sit, but it doesn't give me, uh, you know, an, intel- an, an intellect behind the sitting. And Socrates then said, so I gave up on metaphysics and I turned to human speeches and I realized that that's where I was going to find the beings. And that turning to human speeches and dialectics, he says, um, that's going to constitute the deepest response to the youth's concerns about death. So mm-hmm. maybe we should say a little bit about what dialectics is and, what, and, and how it's a response. Right, right. Because he claims that uh, to look at um, the beings directly... Um, in order to try to discern what good uh, is in mind, as it were, uh, with each of them, um, results in blindness, right? And I'm not quite sure how to take that blindness, but it looks like um, you lose your clarity about what the beings are, at the very least. That's what's in mind. Maybe you can't see the beings if you spend too much time doing that. Whereas in speeches, it looks like he thinks that... um, the beings as constituted by mind or as guided by the good are manifest. You can see them, right? And so is it something like this, that um, in giving and receiving accounts, um, you see necessities of a particular kind, right? Let's just think of one necessity. Things can't both be and not be in the same way, in the same respect, at the same time, right? The thing called the principle of non-contradiction. And that these necessities are uh, real and causal, right? They're really what things are. And so that means that dialectics is uh, practiced that way um, with attention to those sorts of things is really giving you an account or giving you access even better to the things that cause um, the world to be what it is. Yeah, and um, maybe it's even as a preliminary to that, Jeff, I'll just try, I'll define or offer definition of dialectics and see if if, uh, it seems sufficient or if you want to add to it, because I'm not, it's not a common word, although we use it all the time at St. John's, but so something like short exchanges of question and answer that must adhere to the rules of reason, where Mm -hmm. reason is the only authority, right? So I take it this way, that if and one one could do that with oneself as well, but Socrates, you typically see him doing with other people, uh, sort of like we're trying to do now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it looks to me this way, that if one could put aside the passions, which of course would be very hard to do for most people, but if you just could have two people speaking back and forth, um, using dialectics and those principles that Jeff referred to, like the principle of non-contradiction, the rules of reason, we would never hit a point where we said, well, you think what you think, and I think what I think, and and we're just stuck there. That dialectics does not allow for that possibility in and of itself, right? Which is, there's a kind of a shared human mind or shared mind that's available to the human being, right? And that is how one accesses uh, uh, or participates in the eternal or the the is, the being, 
um, that the youth seem to be seeking. Right? It also seems to be the way in which one would investigate what it would mean to have a good human life. Mm-hmm. So they don't they don't need Socrates to be sort of like a like an oracle that just tells them what that consists of. Mm-hmm. And that ties in the dialogue in at least with us, right, as the readers, because if we're not convinced at the end of the dialogue that the soul is immortal, then we haven't completed, you know, the dialectic, you know, we haven't finished it. And so, you know, I guess I guess my question is why why is why is it necessary i know like for the for the use you know i i understand you know jeff jeff's explanation of why socrates needs to convince them that the soul is immortal but why is it necessary as the readers like why do we think it's necessary for the soul to be immortal why is that why is that even required why can't you have a good life and be beautiful and good and just and have a mortal soul. I think it's for the reason we did earlier on, when we're speaking of soul here, we were also speaking of mind for the Greeks. And you cannot engage in dialectics if you are not cognizant of the fact that reasoning, like we were saying earlier, participates in concepts that are that are distinct from particular beings. That that in other words, go back to Jeff's example of, of particular dogs. If I want to talk to someone about dogs, or even if, I want, if I, those entities are intelligible to me, I am already tapping into the idea of dogness or the dog. Um, and that's all he means is that you have to grant that for dialectics to occur. And, and, and every human being, whether they're conscious of it or not, must grant that. That's how you are in the world. But dialectics is the explicit recognition of that fact and then employs that fact in the way Jeff pointed out, uh, short exchanges, question and answer, only reason is the authority, the rules of reason, to arrive at coherent ideas about such things like the beautiful, the just, but also how am I going to live my life? How am I going to have a good life? Which I think is the the deep question of this dialogue. Mm-hmm. I like the way Brian posed uh, the the question of how to understand the end of the dialogue, though, because it looks to me like there's a two-track pursuit of the dialogue after the moment that Lise points out when Socrates realizes that the real danger is misology. So the, the whole concern with the soul is not exactly abandoned, right? We don't get an explicit shift. And in fact, we get a story at the end about how uh, souls pass through a very complicated world that looks like it puts them all where they deserve to be ultimately by some kind of natural um, sorting mechanism. So, you know, how do those two things go together for us, right? It might be that Socrates just feels obligated um, to finish out his account of uh, the immortality of the soul in a way that might satisfy our sense of justice while also um, trying to give his friends uh, a grounding by which to remain attached to the dialectic. But I suspect that it's not, that the tracks are related somehow, right? Yeah, this, this cycles for me back to your opening question, Jeff, and I think I would take it in, in two parts. So when I was speaking about the way in which dialectical exchanges would never lead to an impasse, um, uh, they might lead to an impasse where we think, well, we have to investigate further or we need to define our terms, but they're never going to lead to this sort of huffy impasse of, well, you just have your idea and I just have mine. Um, but we know that those impasses do happen and they happen because of the passions. So I guess I, looking back at the opening question in two ways, 
it looks to me like um, to do dialectics properly, since we are complex beings, that is to say, we have the, the mind and the passions, you need courage to, to submit honestly to dialectics, that is to say, face when you're wrong, face scary things. And you might also need what I'll loosely called moderation, uh, by which I mean, I just mean when you, when you realize you've made a mistake, um, you can control yourself and, and try to correct it. But there still remains that little child we spoke about too, right? Once we brought the passions back in and the way they can complicate dialectics. And I wonder whether the myth at the end is an incantation again for that child, but one that one might say, well, then why would the philosopher ever want a myth if, if that's how we're reading that? Well, maybe because again, as a complex being, one recognizes that yeah, you might actually be scared under these circumstances, in which case you could recognize the limits of your own reason. For instance, you actually have no idea what's going to happen to you after you die. Um, and you might actually pick a myth that, uh, knowing that ignorance, that nevertheless supports a correct use of dialectics. Right? So myth would belong to the realm outside the parameters that uh, belong to reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead, Brian. Oh, well, it, I was just going to say, you know, it's interesting to me that he rejects the kind of natural history of Anaxagoras, you know, he's basically, you know, like a naturalist, like he's looking out in the world and seeing what the similarities are and seeing what actually occurs and then trying to, you know, figure out how the world works based on that. Um, and Socrates goes, no, not into that. Uh, and then he kind of makes something up, you know, he makes a myth. Um, and it's not the first dialogue where we've kind of seen him try to explain the world through myth. So, you know, when we talk about reason knows no authority and Anaxagoras has a seemingly fairly reasonable way to collect information and examine it, and then Socrates relies on myth, why should we rely on Socrates versus an Anaxagoras type? Well, well oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, Jeff, I, you go ahead. <laughs> well, no, no, I was just going to say... Um, could could we try out the idea that the that the myth is somehow true? In other words, the the world that's um, described in the myth is um, a world that looks like it's Anaxagoras' world if it were carried through fully. Right? It's the world where uh, everything is organized the way mind would organize it. It's the world that really supports uh, mind. Um, and you could say that's what the world would have to be like if the soul, and especially the, a particular soul, my soul, uh, survived after death, right? That would be the world that supports uh, mind and supports the pursuit of dialectic. Now, it might be that the soul does not persist after death, but it still could be true that the world supports um, dialectic and supports mind. Um, and it still could be true that... Uh, life in pursuit of dialectic or of mind uh, is the best life, right? The only thing that you would have changed, the only reason, uh, according to this account, that the myth is there is because of the hypothesis of the immortality of the soul in the first place, right? So that makes the falsity of the myth kind of a qualified falsity. And I guess I would add, I agree with that entirely, Jeff, I guess I two things I might add. I think uh, Aristotle in the Metaphysics does a less myth-like version of what Socrates is suggesting here, right? That this is, again, this is what it would look like to have a cosmos that was truly organized by mind. But 
I guess, so Brian, I would cycle back and I would say Anaxagoras is not doing the thing he claims to be doing. Right. He, he claims he, that he has an account of how mind organizes the cosmos, but that's, that's not what he's doing. Right. So that's when Socrates says, we've got to, we got to go to reason. That's the first step. And then I like what, what Jeff suggested. Um, if we were to have a cosmos that supported what lo- what's available to Logos, it would look like this. But I can't prove that that's the case, hence it falls in the category of myth. But all things considered, since we have a complex soul, if you're going to tell a myth, um, as opposed to just saying, I just don't know what happens, then tell one that supports reason. So I guess it, the option of why not just say, I just don't know, um, raises itself now but certainly if if you're not going to go with that option then then that myth looks like a like a good one so then we get somewhere in that spectrum again of you know courage and ambivalence right now we're somewhere between courage and a reasonable myth mm-hmm. this is what you need to there, face there down. is a detail of the dialogue that i find a little bit helpful and maybe this is just a repetition of what lee said but um it at least shows that there's uh, some elements of the dialogue that go in this direction there's the, the brief discussion at the beginning of why Socrates was apparently writing poetry while he was in prison. Um, and Socrates says that he's been having this repeated dream throughout his life where he's told that he needs to practice music. And then he says his interpretation of the dream, uh, I'm interpreting here a little bit, while he was free, in other words, free to converse with other people, free to circulate among the Athenians, was that he should continue doing what he's doing. But once he was imprisoned or no longer free, then he interpreted the dream as meaning that he needed to write verses, right, or compose songs, we could say. So could it be that um, the existence of things like myths, both here and in the other Socratic dialogues, is a sign that Socrates feels that he's under some constraint, right, a, a constraint that couldn't be met or satisfied by saying, I don't know. Uh, saying I don't know would make the situation worse, right? Can you just flesh out a little bit more? Um, I see several ways of of hearing constraint, and maybe I just missed what you said, but it seems to be one might be just legal. One might be the youths, insofar as they're not philosophers yet, otherwise they wouldn't need this defensive dialectics. And, and insofar as they're not, he might need to leave them with something in addition to the dialectical account of dialectics. Or three he's under some constraint that is um, it's pretty hard under these conditions to just go with the, the steely-eyed option of saying, I just don't know what's, what happens after death. And so he is going to actually tell himself myths, knowing they're myths, but as a way of soothing that part. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, number one is an mm-hmm. image of number two, which is the deepest thing. And number mm-hmm. three might be true as well. I'd like to talk yeah. more about that one for Socrates' own sake. Right, because it's one thing to say um, that you can't deal with somebody's passions in the same way that you would deal uh, with their reason. And in particular, dialectic might not be helpful. But it's another thing to say that with your own soul, uh, you somehow have to self-consciously um, make use of a myth, right? knowing that that's what you're doing because you feel yourself under some kind of constraint. So maybe that third uh, uh, alternative that you suggest, Lise, is the most interesting to me. And if we could flesh it out a little bit, that would be good. Yeah, I don't. So I, um, 
I, I don't have an answer yet about this dialogue, but let's pull together some of the evidence. I am struck by the fact that he is talking with these youths, um, and there's this reference to the little child and all of us are certainly in those youths. And in particular, that he's talking to the those youths, those youths don't, do not include Plato, who presumably doesn't need to be doing this um, and maybe doesn't want to be. That is, to go back to your suggestion, Jeff, I don't take this to be Socrates doing philosophy in its purest, highest form. And he sends away his wife, right, who's, who's very distraught, and everybody always thinks that's so cold-hearted. But my sense is those three things support the notion that Socrates actually uh, is having some difficulty keeping himself calm in the face of what's coming. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That it would be bizarre to think that um, uh, he's so unpassionate um, and I think a philosopher is a very passionate being, but that, that he's so unpassionate or unconcerned about death that he doesn't need any help here. And he sends away his wife because her distress is undermining his ability to hold himself together, doesn't want to talk with Plato because Plato doesn't need um, this kind of conversation. He's beyond it. Uh, but Socrates chooses to talk with the youth because he needs it in part. They do too, but so does he. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, the other detail that, that goes along with that is the, the famous episode in the middle of the dialogue with the caress of Phaedo's hair, right, where it looks like Socrates uh, uh, regrets um, a combination of uh, body and soul that will be missing, uh, he presumes, even if his account is literally true and the body and soul are separated after death and only the soul goes on. There's something about embodied beauty that uh, he still finds um, worth, worthy of attention. Yeah. And Phaedo, correct me if I'm if I'm wrong here, but I think Phaedo means light. Yeah? And when he when he strokes Phaedo's hair, he says, "Okay, so let's we need to talk about this before the while there is still light." Yeah. Which I take to be him, right? That that he wants to get these youths and himself in order while he still can. Mm-hmm. Well, is it time, because we're approaching our last word, to talk about Socrates' last words then? Because these are uh, famously controversial, and it's hard to know what to make of them, right? So what we've said so far is that uh, Socrates himself might be having some difficulties, that it would be too much to expect from any human being, any composite being, uh, not to have any difficulties when facing death. Um, and as he gets closer, the light is disappearing. There's still maybe some light on the mountains, we're told, when he takes the hemlock. But that would suggest that Socrates' last words are the darkest thing that he ever says. You need to tell us these last words. <laughs> so here they are. Um, uh, Crito in, your, in, your, in, in my own got, words? You, you got to put on the voice for us. Pick oh, a voice. I, I don't know what he sounded like, though, Lise. Okay. <laughs> Crito, we owe a cock to Asclepius. Pay the debt and don't be, don't be what? Don't be tardy? Something like that. Don't be careless. Now, of course, we all have to go look it up to make sure that Jeff got it right. (laughs) Uh, So this is 118A. Yes. Last three paragraphs. All right, here, I'll try it again. Crito, he said, we owe a cock to Asclepius, so pay the debt and don't be careless. That's better. Yeah. 
Okay, so maybe, maybe too, Jeff, it might be helpful, or I, I guess I could do it too. I could do it too to flesh out um, the, what way this is famous. Mm-hmm. Um, but since you raised it, Jeff, why don't, why don't you help us out with that? Yeah, so the famous, uh, that it's famous comes from a certain interpretation of what's being said, and that interpretation uh, agrees with, um, I guess, what we would call the surface of the dialogue, and especially the surface of the beginning of the dialogue, right? And the interpretation is this. Um, Asclepius is the god of medicine, uh, sacrifices uh, like an animal, like a cock, um, to Asclepius are made for being cured of diseases. So if Socrates in dying is being cured, um, then he regards life as, as a disease and death as the cure. And so one uh, way of saying that this would be the darkest thing that Socrates says would be to say that um, it's an indication that human life is not good, right? So that, that's one interpretation. Famously made, maybe maybe others too, but certainly by Nietzsche, mm-hmm. that so- Socrates really was sort of resentful and looking to die. Um. Is there another way to look at it? So it's not super Well, depressing? the we is interesting already, right? I mean, I would take uh, the proper way to say it if Socrates himself were the one being cured, I owe a cock to Asclepius. So maybe this is already a way to think about uh, what Socrates has done for his friends as being the, uh, the thing that is, the sacrifice is repaying. Could it be an indication that he thinks he's been successful for some reason? In healing the, this, his, his use of fear of right. death, at least. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, a, that's, a good, that's a good question to end on right there. <laughs> it's yeah, a cliffhanger. Yeah. It's a cliffhanger. <laughs> Coming next year, next summer at the theaters, Fado Part Two, where we explain Socrates <laughs> Reborn. <laughs> Socrates Reborn with a vengeance. Cool. All right, guys. Well, uh, thanks so much, and uh, thank you to our listeners. Uh, you can check out more of our stuff at CombatClassics.org. You can check out St. John's College at SJC.edu. And uh, thanks, Lise. Thank, thank you, Jeff. Brian. Thank you both.